Okay, hello. My name is uh, Rachel Elliott, and I'm an assistant professor at Brandon University in Manitoba, Canada. Before I start my talk, I wanted to just thank the organizers of the conference. Uh, for this conference's theme, um, Engaged in Phenomenology, I'm going to speak with you today about the temporality of the we, or the group experience, um, in a talk titled The Futurity of the We, a Merleau-Pontian account of group temporality uh, and improvised music. So I'm going to start with framing my topic in terms of how we form higher order groups. And some common suggestions about this uh, have been that we have a common aim. Uh, others say that uh, it's having shared conventions. And other people say that synchrony is what creates this unity. Maybe something along those lines that I'll explore today. I want to focus on the thesis that sharing time in some way is what underpins the experience of belonging to a group. Okay, so uh, Schutz presents an idea of the we as the result of a tuning in relationship. Uh, and I'll say a bit about what this we and the tuning in relationship is, and then I'll give you a sense of what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of this, of what he says. Uh, so the tuning in relationship, which is constitutive of the we, he says, originates in the possibility of living together simultaneously in specific dimensions of time. And is, in short, the sharing of the other's flux of experiences in inner time. Uh, so he talks about a few different types of examples, but one of them is music. Uh, and he says, the, the flux of tones unrolling in inner time is an arrangement meaningful to both the composer and the beholder because, and insofar as it evokes in the stream of consciousness, participating in it, an interplay of recollections, retentions, protensions, and anticipations, which interrelate the successive elements. Uh, so as you can see, Schutz talks about inner time and uh, participating in different streams of consciousnesses. And he's using Husserlian language to do this. Uh, he, there is some debate about whether Schutz is really desiring a kind of fusion of uh, temporalities, which you might think he is from those quotations. Uh, for example, David, uh, pardon me, Dan Zavi writes, rather than entailing metaphysical fusion, what Schutz has in mind here is the fact that our respective streams of consciousness in such situations are interlocked to such an extent that each of our respective experiences are colored by our mutual involvement. Now, the question then of to what extent and what uh, at what level we can be tuned into each other and sharing time is what I would like to explore here. The question of whether Schutz wants a fusion or wants uh, some sort of 
interlocking participation in, is sort of beside the point of what we can focus on here. Um, because either way, whether Schutz desires a fusion or not, uh, it's, it's not really possible in the Husserlian framework that he uses anyway. So I'm just going to uh, now let you know about some of the advantages of what Shute says and, and then some of the drawbacks so we can move forward. I think the idea of tuning in uh, through, through being in time together as a constitutive uh, moment for the we is intuitive and it seems to make sense. Something like that seems right. Uh, it also aligns with our idea that, uh, and, you know, that we know from phenomenology and existentialism that the individual is a temporal uh, being, primarily. And so may, maybe a, a higher order individual might be as well. Um, furthermore, uh, you know, he emphasizes that just being together physically isn't enough to have this new entity formed, the we. Something else has to happen. Um, the, some of the drawbacks, uh, this, this may or may not require in-person interaction. And uh, more importantly, the way that Schutz describes us, in the case of music in particular, getting into this inner flow of time is, is not uh, really compatible with the view of inner time that he, is, he kind of lays out. There, um, Schutz actually says that we do something called a polythetic synthesis um, to to um, get into this inner time uh, by performing kind of step by step um, the uh, synthesis of notes in a musical composition or or something like that in time. But the polythetic synthesis is an active synthesis um, expounded by Husserl in Ideas. And uh, it's, it seems not possible to, or, or rather unlikely to arrive in inner time, um, which, is a, which is a passive type of synthesis through the active synthesis. But furthermore, uh, and, and more centrally, you know, the type of time consciousness, the type of inner time that he's relying on in this, in this work seems to be that of Husserl, of early Husserl, from internal time consciousness and ideas, where the flow of time is just simply not shareable. It's, it's a purely individual flux of time. Uh, and so the question, I think, that comes to me is, uh, okay, well then what, at what level could we potentially enter into each other's flow of time, um, if not at kind of the fundamental level? Here's one idea. Um, it's, it's well known that uh, Meloponti has uh, a notion of the body schema as underlying uh, sort of embodied intentionality. And uh, this body schema is actually shareable. Uh, for example, in the child's relations with others, he says, uh, the postural or corporeal schema of another person speaks directly to my own motility as themes of possible activity for my own body. Two temporalities are not mutually exclusive as are two consciousnesses. 
because each one knows itself only by projecting itself into the present where they can interweave. So he's kind of positing a certain other level, possibly uh, in addition to sort of the, the one that Husserl has. But in any case, there's something shareable here. Okay, so if you look to the, the left of the screen there, time synthesis as a transition synthesis. It's there like the back of the house of which I can see only the facade or the background beneath the figure. My world is carried forward by lines of intentionality which trace out in advance at least the style of what is to come. Although we are always on the watch perhaps to the day of our death for the appearance of something else. Time is not a line, but a network of intentionalities, he says. Okay, so is, is this sharing of a body schema actually sharing time and to what extent? Well, to a certain extent, yes. Um, I think the kind of sharing of time that might happen when you're marching together, when you're clapping together when you're in synchrony, um, Potentially, you know, we, we might want to talk about entrainment here. That is a sort of being in time together, a sequence unfolding uh, in, in simultaneity in the same order. However, I want to focus on the no part. Uh, it's to me a bit more interesting and in where I'm going to go with the rest of the talk. Uh, when we consider that embodied temporality or embodied intentionality isn't just the body schema, which is kind of a transferable orientation, there's also two other layers that are important. The pre-personal being the main one that I'm going to talk about now, as well as the habit body, which is a more entrenched, entrenched version of the body schema. Pre-personal being a more uh, a, pre a precursor, I suppose, to a body schema. In, in a sense, I know there might be objections to that way of characterizing it. Uh, however, this is just to say that when we adopt a body schema, there are other uh, relations to the environment, uh, susceptibilities and habitualities that are uh, simultaneously occurring within us. And that imbrication of these different layers actually is what creates the lived experience of time, the flow of time. And as far as we're in the body schema, yes, we are sharing a sort of time. Uh, but the lived experience of the time is not going to be the same. And there's a few reasons for this. Uh, actually, the first I'd like to point out is that we have different abilities and ways of adopting body schemas. Uh, some people with maybe neurodiversities or other differences don't pick up on body schemas as easily or as thoroughly. Additionally, our differences in the habit bodies, the capacities that we have built up in a skillful way to adapt patterns, uh, since those are gonna be varied, you can consider an amateur musician for, with, compared to a trained musician, uh, that's gonna be a much different capacity for, for taking on these schemas. So 
so even within the body schema, this is not going to be kind of a identical uh, transitioning through uh, what is still we can still call pretension, presentation, and retention. Uh, so I've kind of named these two reasons why why the experience is going to be different, that we have different degrees of taking on the body schema, as well as that schema having different relationships to our habit body. But uh, more interestingly to me right now is the relationship that both those will have to this pre-personal layer. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, what that is and why it's important. Uh, so the pre-personal uh, layer of sort of receptivity, of passivity, is discussed by uh, Ali Al-Saji and uh, Michael Kelly. Um, this is kind of the, the sphere in which uh, passivity takes place, um, kind of in, in Husserl's sense from the passivity lectures. So this is where we would be sensitive to the call of the object-like formations or allures in the environment, these uh, suggestions that, uh, that if taken up, we could make a more determinate perception through our embodied engagement with them. But we're always receiving these suggestions from the environment, um, and those are happening on the pre-personal level. The flow of time is really crafted between um, our sort of personal uh, body schema or the, our, our transi transition synthesis on the sort of habituated level and the pre-perceptual level of sens sensory life, this primary receptivity. Okay, so the body schema, sharing it, yes, there'll be a, a portion of our unfolding experience that will be in common with others. This is a sort of being together in time. But I'd like to explore actually another uh, dimension of togetherness that may be possible, um, sort of on all the levels of the habit body, the pre-personal, as well as the body schema. And that has to do with the, the openness of pretension. So I'm going to, in what comes next, discuss the, the capacity of the open, openness of pretension to be the location in which we can be together in a dimension of time, constitutive of a we. So I'll just quickly go over some of the varieties of protentional openness. This is a sphere in which Elizabeth Benke is working with her protentional body practice. Uh, in this paper, she's emphasizing the ways that we can kind of dwell or lean into uh, the front or, or future-oriented uh, dimension of time. And I just wanted to bring your attention to the ways that what I said was kind of going to differentiate our temporal experiences even when we're sharing a body schema, namely the habit body and our pre-personal uh, passive uh, attunements. Those things... Uh, are not going to be affecting the, this open edge of the protension. Um, now, so it's this body as an acting, which she's, she's using for the protensional body practice, uh, which she describes uh, in the following way. 
I'm going to read to you a quote. So I align my awareness with the leading edge of this ongoingness, living along with it, not leaping into the presentified future of expectation. This means that I'm not only suspending any interest in a past that would be reached by recollection, but I'm also refraining from any retentionally accented engagement with what has just now been given. For example, refraining, refraining from savoring it as it were, as one would savor the taste of wine or chocolate. Uh, so she distinguishes between integrating consciousness and improvisational consciousness. Uh, where this is the improvisational consciousness, uh, a not knowing, a distinctive mode of comportment in which I deactivate my anticip anticipation of specific content in particular, while at the same time maintaining my interest in this er experiential dimension in particular. So I'm reading this as uh, an emphasis really on these outer horizons. There's this leading edge. What is immediately and passively protended in these truly empty primal protensions is simply more time, more welling up of more now at the leading edge of the living present, providing an ever-opening horizontal readiness for the prolongation of a this of any sort into its immediate more. In other words, the invariant that I can confirm across any possible example at whatever level in whatever experiential dimension and in terms of any sort of enduring temporal object or process whatsoever is a hor horizontality of absolute time constitution that is not itself temporally individuated. Protention then can be understood as a process that is born in passivity, although it admits of certain attentional modifications, um, such as luc lucidly living at the leading edge. So, so what she's saying here is that um, when we're at the leading edge in protention, we are, I think, uh, able to actually, in al Saji's words, suspend the habitual body schema, be more receptive to the pre-personal uh, solicitations of the world, uh, which might be described, you know, by Ben Key as an ideal system of kinesthetic capabilities organized in different ways to be uh, interarticulated. Uh, meaning that uh, we are open to something of a new uh, system of coordination of possibilities and uh, responsiveness to it uh, that is shared. Um, and it can be shared because this open horizon is on the edge of every single strata. So what I'm saying is, is a different take on the we-ness going on in improvised collectives because I'm trying to situate where the collective is located in, not, in, in what's beyond a structure, in a sense, in this open edge of pretensionality. Yeah. Um, and this is really attractive and, and positive because the model that we often go to for understanding being in time together uh, relies upon capacities that are not universal, such as adopting body schemas um, well and uh, and, uh, and and it's not as co-creative when we're when we're adopting preformed schemas. Right, so that's it. and and then my example. here we go. So my example is of Miles Davis.
I'm going to read you this quotation from um, Robert Walzer. Uh, despite his dislike of failure, Davis constantly and consistently put himself at risk in his trumpet playing by using a loose, flexible embouchure that helped him to produce a great variety of tone colors and articulations by striving for dramatic gestures rather than consistent demonstration of mastery and by experimenting with unconventional techniques. Ideally, he would always play on the edge and never miss. In practice, he played closer to the edge than anyone else and simply accepted the in inevitable missteps never retreating to a safer, more consistent performing style. Um, so that's, that's the end of my talk. So thank you so much. I would love to hear uh, comments from, from others very, very much because I know there's a lot of uh, expertise in the audience and I'd be extremely grateful to hear some thoughts.